I do believe right now there's an incredible amount of change. There's such a sense of urgency and and it just has become a, a lot and in a good way, in a good way. We're being stretched um, in this province in, in many good ways and we're seeing the fruition of those stretches right now. Indigenous education has been on fire. For, it, it's, the fire is massive and our job as uh, you know, the leads in our district has been to bring people around the fire. It has been massive work. Also, I've watched it at the expense of being put on to our Indigenous educators, incoming teachers, and students that are currently in our system to try to educate the system. I cannot wait for the day when our people move through a time of surviving to a time of purely just thriving. Welcome to Walking in Relation, Indigenous Pathways Through Education. Within Indigenous communities, education has always been a community role and responsibility. Our interconnectedness and relationship to each other, to the land, to the waterways, the human, and the more than human, is what makes Indigenous communities whole. This gives us a holistic framework of how education could be if we shifted our gaze away from the Western colonial worldview. This concept of being together as one, learning from each other is core to the understanding of Indigenous worldview. By pausing, listening, and reflecting on our surroundings, we will be able to start to understand how much colonialism has taken away from all of us, not just Indigenous people, but all of us. We are inviting you to sit with us as we speak to Indigenous educators as they share their understandings and perspectives about education. I'm inviting you to open up your heart and your mind to leave stereotypes and judgments at the door. This work is asking you to be a witness and a participant in the hopes that we can shift your understandings of what education could be. Here we go, friends. So thankful to have all of you together in circle today as we have some more conversations about Indigenous education. I am thrilled and so honored that I have this amazing group of humans with us today as we chat. Um, I'd like to take a, a first moment just for allowing them to introduce themselves. And I'm going to start with Shelly. Mm, good morning. It's great to... Uh, my name is Shelly Nimi. I come from Atakakoop Cree Nation, which is part of Treaty 6. I also belong to the Métis Nation. Uh, I'm zooming in today to the circle uh, from the traditional territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, which is the Songhees and Esquimalt Nations, and it's lovely to be with, with you this morning. Beautiful. Thanks, Shelly. And Chaz. Tanzigia Nitotum. That says, hello, how are you doing, my friends? My name is Chaz Desjardins. My traditional name is Kamenisukamawa Pisuwat, which translates from Nihiliwiwin into English as Helper of the Thunderbirds. I'm the daughter of the late Robert Edmund Desjardins, Nihiliwiti, and the daughter of Diane Lorraine Johnson, whose settler ancestry is English, French, and Spanish. I'm a member of the Cold Lake First Nations. I'm a Treaty Six Isque, proud mother of two, my eldest daughter being 
Paige, who's 16, and my youngest daughter being Kaylin, who's nine. And I am the district principal of Indigenous Education with the Vancouver School Board. I'm also uh, here virtually with you um, on the unceded ancestral and traditional lands of the Musqueam people. And I recognize that I'm an uninvited visitor to their territory, but very grateful to be able to do the good work that I get to do on a daily basis, supporting Indigenous learners, families, and communities. Thank you for having me this morning. Thank you, Chaz. And Leona. That was beautiful, Chaz. Sai Sozi, Leona Prince. Naradan Wutsanatsan, Laksamati Wutsanatsan. My name is Leona Prince. I'm a member of the Lake Babby Nation. I come from Nagasli Wutan. And I'm a part of the Beaver Clan in our Bathlat system. And I am coming to you today from the traditional unceded territories of the Tilcasco people, which is the Burns Lake Band. And if you throw a stone, you can hit my nation, the Lake Babine Nation, and uh, my community, home community of Wayeni. And so it's, I really appreciate being here today and doing this great work with you, ladies and gentlemen. Messiah, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like this is going to be a good conversation. So I know that all of us have had different connections over the years, doing different work together and connecting. And I know that um, the education system has has maybe shifted and changed, maybe a little, maybe not at all, maybe a lot. And I, I would really like your, your viewpoint and how you've seen things maybe shift or not shift within the work that you all do. Pause for awkward silence. <laughs> are, you giving us, are you giving us think time? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, that's why I sent the questions first. You already had full time. <laughs> I'll take a stab at this first. Okay. I think there's a tremendous amount of change, but I think historically there always has been change. And I'm sure each person who sat in the chairs that we do and occupy the space that we do have always thought that. I do believe right now there's an incredible amount of change because my work has gotten, the the breadth and depth of my work has um, gotten so large uh, for this one role and I, I, there's such a sense of urgency, um, but a careful urgency right now. So I feel like, you know, in the last five years, especially with, you know, the signing of BCT, it really has um, supercharged uh, our, our work. And, and, and it just has become a, a lot and, and in a good way, in a good way, we're being stretched um, in this province in, in many good ways. And we're seeing the fruition of those stretches right now. So I can only speak for my time, my five years in this role. Um, but previous to that, obviously being, you know, in schools and, and as an educator and working directly with children, I can tell you that we have come uh, leaps and bounds to where we were when I started my career in education. And even as a student in the system, if, you know, I'm not going to date myself, but a student in the system, you know, way back in 2018, no, I'm kidding. But, uh, <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> um, I think I can, you know, add to that. And, you know, 
Leona brings a lot of good points forward in regards to, you know, the continued transformation of Indigenous education and the work, the collective work that, you know, people are trying to pick up. And I feel, and I know I've had these conversations with my work colleagues, you know, my, the, the provincial leads in Indigenous education in our departments is, Indigenous education has been on fire, for, especially in the last five years. There has been huge, um, like the fire is massive, right? And um, and our job, as uh, you know, the leads in our district has been the responsibility has to bring people around the fire, to gather people and bring them around the fire. It has been massive work. Um, I see the change. Um, we're still not quite there yet. Often what happens, in, and, I, and I know that Shelley and, and Leona will agree, is this work is still somewhat, you know, Indigenous Ed is still somewhat siloed out uh, from mainstream. And we're not there yet. And I don't know if we can ever really truly get there when we talk about Indigenous education in the heart of what is required um, although I know we are trying to do that to provide these opportunities for our young people to be on the land, to be in ceremony. I know within my own district, we are providing a lot of these um, beautiful opportunities. Um, but we still have a long ways to go. Um, but the good thing is, is that people are, you know, beginning to walk alongside us in that work. A lot of people are beginning to, you know, take up what, what it means to be a true ally to help support and, you know, do that collective lifting, which is required of Indigenous education. Um, I, I speak mostly from, you know, a school standpoint and an, a student and an educator standpoint, because in different districts, depending on where you sit in the level of your, you, you know, your leadership will dictate, you know, the seats that you get to sit at. And so if you're like, you know, a district administrator such as myself, um, in which you are, um, you know, the district principal, you know, you do, you're given a lot of responsibilities, yet you also do not sit at decision-making tables that you may need to sit at. And so what can be, and I know that my other colleagues can attest to this, for those of you who are sitting at similar tables, um, you want to be able to, to, to say what you need to say and not have it be translated through other people. But uh, I think, you know, there is a lot of great work that's taking place and we still need to get to the heart of, you know, what um, the system is, a colonial system, always being remindful that it is colonial. And often, you know, us matriarchs sitting here side by side are, you know, have to take on that work. Well, we do it because we do it for our kids, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we're, from my perspective, over the last 15 years, I've, I've really watched the system uh, feel discomfort uh, 15 years ago with the word decolonization. And I think that there was a lot of fear and, and, and uh, we don't want to talk about decolonization or colonization in the education system. And I think that the system in itself has started to raise its conscious awareness of uh, Indigenous concepts and ideologies and pedagogies and what that looks like within teaching and, and education. I think that there still is um, disparity that actually occurs in districts as it relates to decision making and who's making the decisions for Indigenous people and students and families. 
And I think that we don't have parity there yet. And I think that collectively as Indigenous educators, we're working to have that collective conversation and we're trying to filter that to non-Indigenous people to value and believe and understand what that looks like and feels like for us as Indigenous educators in the systems that we're working in. I think for me, the other piece is, is I do think, I think there's a genuine interest and a, and a, and a desire to want to walk alongside Indigenous educators and, and understand how to do that. And I think there's still some examples where that's superficially happening. And I think that there's still areas of, um, I'm going to use the word, being performative. And I think that we'll see individuals come into systems and adopt the idea of wanting to support Indigenous education, but truthfully not anchoring their uh, ways of knowing and being in doing that work. And so I think that that expectation is still lying uh, on us as Indigenous educators to help them do that work when um, they're not stepping forward doing that work along with us. And so I think that there's lots of growth. And I think over for me, the last 15 years, I've watched that growth in beautiful ways happen, but also I've watched it at the expense of, of really uh, being put onto our Indigenous educators, incoming teachers, and students that are currently in our system to try to educate the system. And I don't believe that that's fully our responsibility. We are collectively all responsible to enhance our knowledge that way. So I think that that's the part that I still feel like we've now got that long stretch to kind of um, bring that closer together. And I think that can only happen by talking about it and being very open about it and being very, um, I think congruent uh, with what that looks like inside the systems that we work in. Because I do believe there's that genuine desire Right. But if we don't have people valuing it and believing it and core really adopting that understanding of it, it's going to take longer in some areas than others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That really relates to this idea of the hidden T's in TRC and that there has to be trust and transparency before truth. Nobody's going to share their truth if you don't trust the system in which you're sharing it in. And that there isn't transparency. Indigenous people by nature are hypervigilant because of our experiences through colonization. And so we need things to be very open. Um, indigenous leadership is very open. It's very transparent. It's very raw. Um, in, in a system where we like to skirt around issues sometimes, and that's what Shelley's talking about, is the sidestepping of really major issues and holding up things that are maybe more palpable and digestible at this time. In, in saying that as well, I think that our system sometimes moves quicker than our own people because we're all products of colonization. And so what I'm seeing is that we're expected as well, like Shelley said, the, the, the onus is on us, but some of our people, specifically within our nations, that uh, um, have a recent history with the residential school systems, they might not be where they need to be to have these conversations. And so I agree with Shelley that it can't just be on us because many of us either are at the infancy of a long healing journey or haven't even had the courage to start it and are still trying to deal with our own pieces. 
And so even though there is a sense of urgency, how do we keep elevating um, Indigenous education so it's not a flash in the pan and something that we're engaged in right now in public education? Um, and how do we elevate it, but do it carefully so that collectively we can heal together? Because that's what it's going to take. And the onus has to be distributed for this work because the pressure is on the, the oppressed. It's Paula Freire's work, right? The pedagogy of the oppressed, that it's always on the onus of the oppressed to do the work for decolonization or, or reconciliation when it has to be an effort and an effort that is distributed equally throughout our system. So I wonder in the places and the spaces that you are in, what are those critical pieces that you think are are the biggest pieces of your role in order to when we pass when we pass this along to the next person who gets to to sit in your spaces? What do you think the critical pieces are for you? Well, I think definitely providing some mentorship, uh, you know, one to one and often, you know, making connections. And I, I do value mentorship and the importance is it's just preparing people, preparing them in a good way so that they understand what they're coming into, especially as Indigenous and if you're the lone Indigenous person in a district, you carry a lot. There's a lot of untold narratives that people don't get to hear. Um, you are often in spaces where you haven't been seen before or heard before. So you have to really kind of navigate uh, carefully, right? And, um, you know, sometimes that takes a long time. I, preparing people and letting them realize that, you know, they do have gifts, but they are coming into a, a battleground of a, you know, a system that, you know, not built for our success, right? It's built for us to do a certain purpose and, and, and we have lots to negotiate in these roles that we're in. And I know for many of us, and I'll speak for myself, that has been kind of like, like a life walking journey forward, right? When we talk about that healing piece, that that soul wound that people talk about, the soul wound, well, it is a collective wound. It's a collective soul wound. We all have to heal. We've all been, you know, as Marie Petit says, we've all been marinated in Eurocentric thought and have been impacted by colonialism. And so it's for, you know, the non-Indigenous peoples to really begin to unpack that for themselves. And that is a personal, deeply personal journey. Well, not everybody's there yet to to begin that journey. But if we can, you know, help begin to help them to understand that that's your homework. That's your life's homework that you got to kind of, you know, get on board with, right? And for me, that also ties into this, the, the philosophy that I've been trying to really work through the last uh, few years here in my own district is, is that um, if I was to leave, if we were all to leave and other people were to take our jobs tomorrow, what have what impact have we had to anchor some procedures and protocols that allow for the next person to step in without having to put their career at risk by advocating? Mm. And so for me, it's about if the head of the house or the superintendent and the board, uh, what knowledge have they anchored structural change to allow that pathway forward for Indigenous leadership and educators to move forward in the system that has actually been structural change, right? So I can have a good relationship with my superintendent and they can invite me to sit at the table and be in shared decision-making. 
But if I was to leave, will that happen for the next person that takes my position? Or did we anchor a procedure or a process that aligns with Indigenous protocol and values? Right. And if not, what do what is that work that we need to do? And will the board and will the superintendent honor that and understand that philosophy from an indigenous worldview? Or will it bump into their bias? Right. And if it does bump into their bias, where do we need to be able to push in in a way that doesn't put our advocacy at risk for losing our jobs? Those are the pieces that I'm really trying to look at systematically, I think, for, for Indigenous education when I scan the system now. is is that it's, it, relationships are critical and key because we can have those conversations, but how do we leverage those relationships to anchor now some structural change that allows for those that come behind us to be able to take that work a little bit further down the road? And so where do those values and beliefs align and not align? And where do we push in collectively as Indigenous educators in a system to be able to um, have our voice authentically seen and heard, but valued, and that the protocols align with the procedures? I, I <laughs> when you talk about mentorship, something's glaringly obvious. And I come from a small district that could be considered rural and really rural in some places. And you guys are talking about the people coming after you in, in the state that I'm in. I don't, I have people that I can mentor. Um, but there isn't a lot of people that could take up this role currently. I don't have in my mind, a success, a succession plan. And that really alarms me. We have 33%, 33% Indigenous students. Um, there's 14 nations here. The disparity in this system is that we don't have enough Indigenous educators working in smaller towns uh, for me to mentor. Um, and so I have been talking about, in order to be us, they need to see us. And I'm talking about our children. And I'm talking about Indigenous educators being in every, or Indigenous people, being in every role throughout the system. Um, if we at the, at the highest levels of a district are not role modeling that, um, then it impacts our kids. Every, every conversation that we're in should have that focus. And so I heard that if they want to be us, they need to see us. Because if there, there aren't people from their own communities uh, driving buses, um, you know, helping clean up our schools, the janitors, you know, the heartbeat of our, our schools, it'd be a mess if they weren't there. They're integral. Principals, teachers, uh, there are limiting factors for our students if there is nobody there that they can connect with or see themselves in. Um, and this is very apparent in this system. So first of all, I would like equity in the number of Indigenous educators. I mean, that's more difficult in some schools where 70% of uh, the children are Indigenous. And, and so that's the first piece. Mm -hmm. Had I have so had someone to mentor <laughs> who are, who's going to take up this work, I think the first thing that I would impress upon them is that this work is a vocation. It's the thing you wake up to every day. It's 
part of every fiber of your being. It's the reason you walk, as our friend Wap would say. When I heard that, what's the reason you walk? And this work is largely the reason I walk because my children are part of this system and my family and my community and all of those ripples of responsibility that Indigenous people have from the person and the child out, right? <clears throat> I would tell them that this is not a role. This is not a job. It's a vocation. You live and breathe it every day because at the end of the day, when you leave this building, you don't take off that hat. It's the hat you wear 24 hours a day. You can't, you know, take yourself out of it and put on another hat. Of course, we wear different hats, but it's that one role where you're hired for your culture, um, for your history. Um, sometimes who, what you look like, I don't know. There's many factors in why we're hired, but this role is specifically tied to who we are, our history, and it's being discussed every day. So you have to have that conviction in this role um, to move it forward. And when you take on this role um, in our bathlatch system, our potlatch system, thinking about Sarah and her potlatch's pedagogy, mm-hmm. it truly rings true because um, when you take on this role, it's a naming ceremony. In all of our cultures here, names mean something. There's power to them. And, and not power in the sense of a colonial perspective, but a responsibility to the system. And so when we take on these roles, we enter a naming ceremony. And so we have to be careful for the names that we take on. And in in my Bathlat system, um, it was taught to me that if you seek out a name that's too strong for you at the time and your growth, your growth as a human, um, you may succumb to the pressure of that because bigger names mean bigger responsibility. And so I've t- taken that teaching to heart. And so we have to be careful, you know, for those naming ceremonies, for that level of responsibility that those names carry. If you think about our colonial system and, and, the higher you get, the bigger the responsibility, right? In our system, we know that, um, but we can't confuse that with power. And I've always said that. And so if I were to mentor someone, it would be that, you know, understanding the responsibility of this role, truly, and feeling it. And there isn't that mentorship, and it is up to us and in our roles uh, to leave that legacy that they can follow and hopefully empower them to take up this work. Um, I don't know how long this last two years has taught me that life is unpredictable and precious. So there needs to be a succession plan. There needs to be mentorship and ongoing mentorship. And there needs to be equity in our workforce so we can actually have someone to mentor. Absolutely. Wow. I can't, I can't agree any more than with that, uh, Leona. And the importance of when we have these positions, they need to be filled by Indigenous peoples. Yeah, I just think it's crucial. Can I just make a comment on that too? Because actually I think what the part that I want the system to hear is to not fight us on it, right? It's just, so when we look at the 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 structures of our partner group just to accept and honor that we want to increase that equity 
right? And that we want to see um, our children to have those opportunities and to embrace that with us, right? So let's not make it political and and hard and difficult to try to fight in for equity for that, right? That our children deserve the right to be able to see themselves within that, just like Leona said. And I think that when the system at times puts those barriers up for us, it makes it extremely exhausting for the one or two Indigenous uh, educators or leads in the system to try to operationalize that. So that's why we need the, that strong advocacy and allyship inside the system to help us. And so I say that in that way because I really do hope that our partners are going to be listening to this at different times and sit with that. And if that if that feels or resonates a certain way, to reflect on what that actually feels like if you're feeling a certain way about that because equity is good, right? It will help us with this work. Right, and it'll help move this system along. So, thank you for putting that on the table, Leona, because I think it was incredibly powerful. Thank yeah. you. And and to further, just one last thought in that area is that there's a privilege right now for me to be sitting here um, within my own territory, feeling emboldened as an Indigenous woman, as a matriarch in a matriarchal system, um, and also the other aspect of my work here is that this is a safe space. School District 91 has done a great job in in not only creating a safe space, we talk about this with our kids and I learned this from my middle years teachers. I say mine like I own them, but <laughs> the middle years teachers, but they've created in this district a safe space and a brave space. So nothing that I'm sharing here, um, I feel like I'm at a risk. And I want, if we're talking about mentorship and talking about, as Shelley said, speaking to our colleagues, um, these are the types of conversations, these open, uh, transparent and real conversations that need to be happening everywhere. But I'm cognizant that that isn't always the case. Yes. And, and, you know, the words that we're using, I got a little too comfortable the other day and uh because in our district we talk about white supremacy and that took some work that took some work to get us here uh and, and then i was in a space out outside of my work and i'm like oh yeah you know that totally reminds me of this thing and, and it's all about white supremacy and then i looked around because i'm like okay this you know we've come so far in education um but what i'm seeing is that we pushed it so far to echo some of the sentiments of our first question, but we we pushed it so far in education. But another thing that I'm also feeling in terms of mentoring and, and spreading, you know, good words and good teachings and sharing knowledge and, you know, at the core of who we are as Indigenous people is sharing of the knowledge. And I find sometimes that we've surpassed community. We talk about things in our districts in, in education and and sometimes you know it it has moved forward past the capacity of the community and where their learning's at. And mm -hmm. so there's in the under the umbrella of mentorship, um, we've tried to bring the community along. Um, we had a honoring diversity series for parents and this idea of bringing parents along in professional development. How are we having this conversation and these important 
you know, foundational conversations and, and learning um, in, in our community as the education system, but not bringing all of our people along. The, the rest of the people that our children spend time on. <laughs> They're primary parents, right? Yeah. And so I think in terms of mentorship as well, you have to look at the ripple effects of everybody th those teachings are touching. And we often think about education as a standalone piece, but it has far-reaching, you know, um, implications for everything that we do. Um, so mentorship can mean many things. And in, in this case, uh, mentoring along the community so that we don't leave them behind. Yeah, I, I would agree. It's a reciprocal mentorship because especially when you are not of the territories uh, in which you are working alongside, you know, and I see that for myself, you know, being not from here, um, you know, I'm from the prairies. I always kind of, you know, I have a lot to learn and I continue to have a lot of humility around, you know, that mentorship piece as, you know, it, like you say, it is a mentorship right into the communities and the families to, to provide support. Um, and that is a big part of our, our work, right? Is that providing that, you know, sometimes we do very formal mentorship and then many of us just have very, very many connections of informal mentorship where we're just supporting a lot of people and a lot of people support us too uh, in the system and outside the system i'm sure each one of us sitting here has probably about three or four mentors some of them might be here like maybe have one in the system and then we have like three or four you know we have our sisterhood out there we know what our sisters are out there and they're they got our backs and other districts you know and we call each other and right when we need support um yeah yeah, it's which ties in beautifully to the next question. But I, I wanted to loop back to something that Shelley said that I think is like really critically important that um, when we bring it to the table and when we have these conversations, it's it's not it's not about equality. It's about equity. And it looks different. And those are the conversations that I'm having and trying to push back against. And it is it's so exhausting. So then my wonder is. Um, and Chaz brought me to this term of survivance. Um, what does your survivance look like and feel like in, in, the, in the work that you do? You know, I, I talk about how do we retain our inner fire, which is our kind of our, you know, our spiritual core um, in a system that is, you know, very much unlike it's a collision of worldviews. And so when I think about my survivance, um, truthfully, you know, it has been hard. I know, you know, um, being, you know, the expected lone voice in a system can be, you know, and can be soul crushing at times. Or like I say in my talk, in my dis dissertation spirit, your spirit gets, you know, gets eaten by the system. Right. And you're just trying to survive and keep your your inner fire lit. Right. And sometimes you don't survive. And sometimes you survive, um, but man, many of us are thriving despite being in a system that is, you know, hard to navigate. And it's ex extremely hard when you don't have um, other Indigenous leaders at the level in which you're leading. What I can say, and personally just for myself, you know, 
I, being an administrator for the last five years, it's a lonely journey and it, it it's painful at times. Um, but the beauty of the work is that, you know, the children, the children always light my fire and keep me going. The, if I go out into the schools and do some drumming with kids, that's what keeps me going. That is my survival, right? Just like our ancestors before us knew that they needed to survive so that, you know, their ancestors and their, their children could come in behind, right? So that's my reminder. And uh, I continue to survive because I have good relations with a lot of really, really strong matriarchs and, you know, lots of uh, Indigenous male leaders in the system who we just kind of support each other. Like, we have mentors in our own system, too, that kind of look after us. Like, they see us for who we are and the experience that we have, even though they're not Indigenous, but they can see that, you know, we need support because we come in, we walk into these spaces and sometimes we, you know, we're spoken at, spoken for, or spoken over. And that's not an uncommon experience. I cannot wait for the day when our people move through a time of surviving to a time of purely just thriving. There is untapped potential and energy and and parts of our culture that, you know, are so beneficial to all. And yet, a lot of us are stuck in that time of survivance. And people think about that in historical terms, but this is today, this is now, this is still a decolonizing process. And so one of the aspects of who we are is still survival, because we're still trying to reestablish our own cultural knowledge um practices ceremonies in some cases you know languages if it's still possible so i I think it is still a time of surviving the impacts of colonization and right now we're doing things within our own communities that we're trying to surpass that and i'm i'm not sure what the way through is but I know that our people have been resilient for so long that we will see our way through this and it will be through, um, you know, leadership, both elected and hereditary and, and the, the knowledge that they bring to the world. And so in terms of my own survivance, I have <laughs> been questioning that, right? I, uh, I think sometimes, and and I've been given a lot of time in the last couple of years to do some deep reflection on how I find myself here, um, you know, why I do this work, um, how I'm going to continue to do this work in a way where, you know, you give up so much of yourself um, to to continue to do this work every day. Um, and sometimes, and, and this all comes together with mentorship and how we do this, how we find ourselves here, how we continue, how do we create longevity in the system. Um, but I, I want everyone to take a pause and, and do a sort of self-reflection piece on where you are, how much you're giving, and is, is there reciprocity of that energy? 
back. Um, because as, as people, indigenous people, we always talk about internal balance, that holism. And what I find, the thing that stretches my own ability, my own ability to survive um, in a system that can have some barriers is that we can become depleted and, and, you know, and be humbled. And in the last few years of my health, I've been really humbled. And so I think, you know, we can continue surviving. Um, we can stop and take stock and, and rebalance ourselves. Um, I think that's been a part of my survivance is, and being in a, in a community, because this district is a community that allows me to stop, take a breath, take stock. Um, they see value in me as a person. And so I, I, I think all of us here, and I know this to be true because I know you guys, I, I don't know you so much Calder, but I know everyone else. Uh, this work can be relentless. This work can be, you know, there, there can be some heartache. Um, there's many, many, many um, celebrations of just, the movement within the system that we talked about. Um, and obviously, Carolyn, this is a difficult question because you've talked to us in the middle of our survivance. I don't even, I can't even, you know, put myself outside of that because I'm in it right now. And so we advocate for self-care in words, but sometimes those words don't um, follow through to action. And if we were to speak to other um, educators who are just coming into the work that Chaz and Shelly and I do and you do, um, it is to truly live that balance, find that balance. That's the one thing that is going to see you through. Do, you know, just an inventory of yourself. I know when I am suffering mentally um, and I'm drained and all those things are weighing heavily on me. Um, you know, we've gone through a lot as Indigenous people in the last year. Um, a lot of truths coming to light that even we weren't prepared for. And so I noticed that I suffer physically. And those are real tangible things. So my way to survive um, doing this rewarding, beautiful and sometimes challenging, well, a lot of times challenging work is to keep an inventory, keep an inventory um, because I can let that go astray because I'm so busy and focused on the work, which is also a trauma response, running away from, you know, what's going on through hard, hard work is a trauma response. And um, I think that's the piece that will help you see your way through this mm -hmm. is ensuring that because I notice when I go back and I start thinking about um, my mental health it's amazing how much that's tied to everything and you can see you know my my Cree cousin's medicine wheel at work you can see it and as soon as you start um, noticing a deficit and that takes some self-reflection and slowing down you see a deficit within your own body within um your own household or whatever it is and you apply something to help you know remedy that you can see every aspect of who you are as a human being um just getting better so 
seeking that balance, doing an internal inventory, and and then re-engaging in the work, but taking the time to do that at times. Because this work is fast-paced, as Chaz said, challenging, as we've all said, and can run you ragged if you aren't mindful of that. And your body will humble you if you don't take the time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I definitely echo those words. I think that if we're not consciously aware, it can be very depleting. And I think that um, the remembering uh, and conversations like this really are helpful, right? Because I think there's moments in time where you do feel alone and you do feel isolated and you do feel um, all of the distractions of the Western education system uh, that you are in survival, right? Because you have lots of expectations that you're you're shouldering for not only the communities that we serve and that we the children we work for and the families that we work for and the staff that we're that we're advocating with and growing and mentoring, but then trying to decolonize a Western system on top of that and the noise of of the distractions that can that can weigh there. And so I think that by giving of all of that to all of those various areas, I think that it's important for our colleagues and ourselves to recognize that survivance is a real thing for Indigenous educators. Mm-hmm. And that uh, if we can create safe spaces like Leona say it speaks of, right, then we'll be able to talk about what that survivance looks like for us and what we need from the system for us to be able to feel safe and seen and heard. So we can communicate what our needs are without feeling at risk, right? And so I think that that's, uh, this has been a beautiful conversation because it is a very real thing that we experience, and I would say regularly, and we're not going to, we're not detached from that as of yet. And I do hope that we will see, you know, our young children coming through the system and those that are yet born, that will be surviving and be thriving. So beautiful. Oh, absolutely. And it feels like that's where it wants to end, but I just want, I want um, to know what, what words of advice would you give all of our new Indigenous, um, Indigenous humans that maybe want to step into this work, who want to step in as educators, who want to take up this work? What would your words of advice be for them? I'd say welcome. And I would say, I would say welcome, welcome to the world of Indigenous education. You have a large extended family and that you will find that that stretches that area of support. And that even though we talk about survivance and even though we talk about system reform and change and decolonization, we are a family and we are here for you and welcome because we want you here and you're already loved. I agree with Shelley. Don't forget your, your connections to your kinship. We are all family. We are all related. Be fierce in your work and know that you belong. Know that you have these amazing gifts that you bring to the system that will help create space. And by you coming into the system to want to take on this really good work, not only do our children need you, but every child needs you. It's beautiful. Um, if I were to add anything to what my colleagues have said, which was incredible, I would say that in addition to the extended family that we have here within the system, you bring into this role 
the collective knowledge of your entire ancestry. They're standing beside you every single day. Every day when you walk through whatever doors you walk through, whatever tables that you sit at, they're there with you. And you can feel that presence. Whenever you speak and there's an energy that's coming from that space, um, your, your, your ancestors, your community, everything that you are as an indigenous, indigenous person speaks through you. And those words will ring true. And just be mindful that you are a living example of the sacrifices that our people have made. The space that you occupy within this system was made possible through that sacrifice, through those experiences, through the history of our people. And so in this role, honor that history, honor those ancestors, keep them present every day in your work, and it will help you thrive in this work, achieve what you need to achieve, and, and ensuring that everything that has happened in our history is not in vain. Goodbye. Walking in, in Relation is hosted, is hosted by Carolyn Roberts, Roberts and is and produced, produced and edited by Calder, Calder Shivery. Each episode contains original music by Carolyn Roberts and Jody Prosnick, featuring Tilden Webb on piano, Jody Prosnick on stand-up bass, Ramona Elke on drum and vocals, and Dante Elke on shakers. Musical Engineering by Sheldon Zaharko and Monarch Studios. There's not enough words in our language to be able to say how thankful I am to be sitting in circle with Leona Prince, Chaz Desjardins, and Shelley Mimi with these conversations of hope and love and connectedness. It just brings my heart so much joy and I'm so thankful for each and every one of you and thank you for being here today. And to Simon Fraser University's Indigenous Digital Media Grant whose funding helped to support this project. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Take good care, everyone, and we hope that you'll come and listen again.